You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. So have you ever heard the comment, there's no such thing as a bad question? Do you know that phrase? No such thing as a bad question? In education circles, we say that a lot. Um, it, of course, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true at all. We use it with students in hopes that it will free them to ask questions. Because when they ask questions, we find out what they know and what they don't know. And we can kind of address that. We find out what they're interested in, right? And so I'm a big believer in, you know, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. I like to teach the students I have, not just the students I wish I had. You know, I want to meet them where they are. And so I've used that phrase, too, that there's no such thing as a bad question. But that's, I mean, at at best, that's a hyperbole, (laughs) right? There are bad questions. These are bad questions that are being put to Jesus. We call them bad faith questions. So, for example, in a classroom, it might go something like this. A student might want to express, you know, to the class that they know something. So they'll frame it as a question, but really it's just a comment. They're not really asking anything. They just want everybody to know that they know something. That would be a bad faith question. Or maybe something worse, like you'll ask a question... Not because they're they're interested in what you believe or because they don't know the answer. They'll ask the question in a kind of conniving, kind of manipulative, coercive kind of way to try and either get something out of you or to kind of expose you, right? So it's something controversial or there's something that they think if they can get you to say that, that they'll have the upper hand. And so they'll kind of trap you in these questions, So they present these things that are supposedly conundrums that will kind of, uh, I don't know, intensify the relationship or uh, problematize the relationship. We call those bad faith questions. And when people are communicating, sometimes we do this, right? We do this when we have displaced, displaced aggression or displaced anger. Like we're angry about something, but we don't feel comfortable expressing that anger, so we kind of act out in a different way, right? Often this might happen, say, um, a parent uh, is having a hard time at work, and so they can't actually express to their supervisor, or not in a healthy way because of some kind of toxic situation, how things are, and so they put on this kind of veneer when they're at work, and then they come home and, you know, kick the dog and yell at the kid. Well, it's not the dog's fault, and it's not the kid's fault, right? It's just a displaced aggression. That's another form of kind of bad faith communication. But we're going to try and focus today, believe it or not, not on bad faith communication, but on good faith communication. We're titling today and next week, Good Faith Questions. So this is Good Faith Questions Part 1. And if you stick around for next week, you'll hear another sermon on Good Faith Questions Part 2. It's because in this series in Matthew that we're going through at the moment, it started off with three parables in a row. And then we have kind of two stories in a row where Jesus will be asked some questions. And that's what's taking place here. So we're kind of told up front. uh, Thank you, Ed, for reading that passage for us. 
we're kind of told up front that the Pharisees are in bad faith. Like they intend to kind of entrap Jesus. Like the whole point of the conversation was to was entrapment. And so to kind of catch him in something. So they sent some of their disciples, which is interesting. Jesus had disciples, but so did the Pharisees. They sent some of their disciples along with some of the Herodians to ask Jesus a question. Now let's just pause right there for a second because a little bit of historical background here is going to help us a lot, I think. Because the disciples of the Pharisees are those who want to become Pharisees themselves. But the Herodians are another completely different group of people. Like people that wouldn't typically even associate with the Pharisees or the disciples. So the Pharisees are kind of pious folks. They, um, they want to follow the law. They have a lot of social capital. People kind of listen to them. But at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were really kind of coming to their wits end of what to do with Rome and were leaning more and more towards the zealots, those who were going to resist by military means, right? So, and eventually they would. In a few short years after this conversation took place that we read about, the Pharisees would side with the zealots in a fight kind of against the Romans. So if you ask a Pharisee whether or not anybody should pay taxes, they're going to say, no, man. Taxes? Who can trust the government? Right? Because the government is illegitimate anyway. We don't even believe that this government rightfully exists. I, mean, I know it, it takes a lot of imagination on your part to imagine anybody who would speak that way. But, but if, you, if you put on your imagination cap, you can imagine that here's a group of people who they're, they are the descendants of folks who had been in this land for centuries and even more than that, more than a millennia, they believed that God had promised their forefather Abraham and his descendants that he would give them some land. And now they're in that land, except they're not in control. The Romans are foreign occupiers who are now charging them tax on the land that was their forefathers. How could we possibly owe taxes to Rome, to the emperor? In fact... <clears throat> In the war, the first Jewish war that would start shortly after this conversation was had, when the zealots would uh, take Jerusalem momentarily from Rome, the first thing they did is they went to the temple and they burned the records of debt. So no one would know who owed what to Rome. So you have the disciples of the Pharisees, and they're there, and when the question is put to Jesus, should we pay our taxes, they're wanting a resounding no. And uh, so they can go back and tell, you know, their fellow Pharisees as well as their friends, the zealots, that this guy is the guy and we can trust him. We can follow him because he's for not paying taxes. The Herodians, on the other hand, are a completely different group of people. They're kind of, kind of get along Go along to get along. No, get along to go along. There you go. Right? You know, we can make things work. We can, we can work with the Romans and maximize their strength and their power and their prosperity for our benefit. And so paying a little taxes is the least we can do because we're going to get good roads. We're going to be protected from foreign adversaries. 
Um, we're going to have opportunity probably to kind of collect at least part of that tax for ourselves, right? We'll, we'll benefit from this relationship. So the Herodians, um, I mean, I might use the term compromisers, but not in the best sense of that word. Like we have to compromise to be in healthy relationships. You know, you know all relationships are about kind of give and take. Not like good, healthy compromise, but kind of like the, that suspicious kind of, kind of getting along with the enemy in ways that, you know, some, make other people feel uncomfortable. So the Herodians would want someone, a leader, who would say, yeah, pay your taxes. So now we have these two groups of people who typically would not be together. And we were told, again, that they did, they did this to entrap Jesus, that their intention was to engage in kind of bad faith questions or bad faith communication. So they, they offer to Jesus that, the question, should we pay our taxes? And he's like, well, let me see a coin. And so they hand him a coin. And their coins, like our coins, had a person's face on it. And the person's face that it had on it was the emperor. And so Jesus says, well, who do you think this belongs to? It's got his face on it right here. They said, well, the emperor. And he's like, well, then, pay to the emperor what belongs to the emperor. And the Herodians are like, all right, this guy's okay. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, and pay to God what's God's. And the Pharisees are like, well, that's a good answer. And they're like amazed by how he, how he responded to that. So Jesus kind of responds to their kind of bad faith question with his own kind of good faith question and his kind of good faith communication. His, his honesty and his straightforwardness is a way of kind of cutting through their, their manipulation and their own brokenness to kind of speak the truth to them. Right, so the, the series that we're in, we titled Clear Mysteries. Um, Jesus will instruct his disciples to be wise as serpents, but to be gentle as doves. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing for us in this text. He is being wise as a serpent in the way he answers their riddle or their conundrum. But he's being gentle as a dove in the process. Now, this passage of Scripture in the church tradition is often paired with the passage from Exodus that tells the story of Moses kind of speaking to, to God and saying, I, I want to see your face. I want to I see your presence. I want to experience, you know, who you really are. And God obliges to do that, but he does so in a very kind of gentle way. He's like, Moses... If you really experienced everything I am, it would consume you. <laughs> it would be more than you could take. But, but I'm willing to, to pass by. I'm willing to come close. I'm willing for you to experience kind of truly kind of who I am, even if you don't have the capacity to experience fully who I am. And as he does so, um, Moses kind of hides in this part of the, of the rock and part of the mountain and, and God kind of passes by and, and God does everything for Moses that Moses wants and even in ways maybe that Moses wouldn't have asked for, maybe in ways that Moses couldn't fully comprehend, 
certainly in ways that Moses wouldn't have designed for himself. But God shows that, that God cares for Moses and that God cares for the Hebrews and that God is willing to be with them and that God can be trusted that God will be with them. And what's interesting about that passage of Scripture is when we translate it uh, literally, in the most kind of straightforward way, it says, I want to see your face. And then we get to this gospel passage. Jesus asks, whose face is on this coin? And I think we get kind of confronted now with this kind of question. Whose face are we really going to be concerned with? I mean, at the end of the day, we pay our taxes, right? And our taxes provide things for us, right? We have a police force. We have uh, firefighters. We have public school. We have uh, the U.S. Postal Service. We have roads to drive on, right? All of those things are what our, our taxes have paid for. And that's part of what it means to kind of live in a community. But at the end of the day, what really constitutes who we are is not just the taxes that we pay, but that last half of that question that kind of um, says, well, pay to God what is God's. That's everything. That, that's kind of asking us to be all in. Not just kind of giving God a portion of who we are or part of our lives, but that every part of us will be touched, will be affected, will be formed and transformed by our encounter with God, by who we are with God. Now the question is, has anybody ever actually seen the face of God? Well, we can say, well, some people saw the face of Jesus, right? Certainly that was, in a way, the face of God. God become flesh. But Jesus isn't around anymore, or at least not in a way that I can see his face, not in the same way I can see your face. So can we see Christ, or can we see God? Well, Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But then he would also say, in other places, when you gave water to someone who was thirsty or you fed someone who was hungry or you clothed someone who was naked or you welcomed someone who was a stranger or you, um, you uh, visited someone uh, or cared for someone who was sick or you visited someone who was in prison. When you did this, you did it to me. So we know that we're all kind of created in the image and likeness of God. We've heard that part of the story before. We are all created in the image of likeness of God. Yes? So that's all of us. And it means that every person that you see is a bearer of that image and likeness of God. And uh, a few sermons back, I guess it was this summer, when we were talking about the new ordinary I quoted uh, Frederick Buechner's book, The Remarkable Ordinary. And he said in that, he said, like when you see someone, you can easily just pass them by and, you know, we're too busy to kind of actually care for every person we see in any given moment. But if we slow down enough to realize that who that person is and, and all that they are as an, as a, 
image bearer of God, made in the likeness of God, kind of carrying the spark of God. That, I mean, you might just be standing in line at Publix and you're checking your phone as the, as the cashier checks out your, your groceries. But had Rembrandt painted a portrait of that cashier, that portrait would be worth millions of dollars. And all of us would spend time when we'd take pilgrimages to go to a museum to kind of see the famous portrait of the person. Yet there stands the person living in front of us. And we don't see them. You see, when we have this pay to Caesar what's Caesar's and pay to God what's God's, whose face is on the coin and Moses' request to see God's face, we see the face of God in the other if we have eyes to see. And that's our opportunity now to kind of live into a rich and full um, realization of the gospel. That the gospel's not just some fairy tale about what happens to us when we die. The gospel is good news right here and right now that can change the way we live. And in a world that is full of conflict, in a world that is trying its best to, to have you dislike the other, distrust the other, kind of fear the other, the gospel comes at us with a different way of being. It's different. And it's an alternative not just to the Pharisees and their disciples, but it's also an alternative to the Herodians and the way they lived. You see, the Pharisees thought that you could, by, by force, either by social force or by military force, you could change the world, right? If you had a lever and it was big enough, you could do it. And that's the way a lot of us act. We think that we're going to kind of win by violence and by force. And Jesus just doesn't play that game. But then the alternative is not the way of the Herodians. The Herodians are just kind of a bland compromise. Now, compromise is the wrong word. It's a, it's a, it's a bland assimilation that we're just going to kind of become like the world. We're either going to resist it by force or we're going to become like it. Those are the options that are offered to Jesus. A or B. Are you going to fight with us or are you going to join the Romans? (laughs) And the Pharisees and their disciples wanted a fight and the Herodians wanted an assimilation. And Jesus, they said, you know, are you A or B? And Jesus said, C. C. Not just C in the, in the third letter of the alphabet, A, B, C, but C, like S-E-E. See who I am and see whose face you're looking at. Because it's not by force that we're going to influence the world to be Christian, nor is it by just assimilating into the world and its ways, but it's about being in the world, but not like it. Not so divisive, 
and finding, finding the true value of life in the face of the other who might look different than you and certainly be different than you in a lot of ways, right? They might, they might share a different political point of view than you do. They might share a different um, way of living in the world than you do. But they are created in God's image. And there's a story that's told that either you have to just go along to get along and go, get along to go along, or you have to fight. And I think what Jesus is offering us is so much more and so much better. So let us pay our taxes and let us give to God what is God's. And let us live like Christ in this world, caring especially for those in need and realizing that as we come into interaction with, with these people, as we come to the table to eat, that this is the Christ in the flesh. If you want to know what God looks like, look in the face of your neighbor. It's the closest thing we have to the image of God available to our sight. You know, the second commandment was don't make any graven images. And some would say, because God has already made an image. His image is in humanity, male and female. He created them in his image. And that's why we're not to make the image of God. Because God already has. And we're just to see it now in the face of the other. Lord, let it be. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.